You are listening to the GNU World Order, episode 40 of season 13 for day 273. Hey everybody, my name's Klaatu, and this is a podcast about Linux. In today's episode, I want to talk about the operating system wars. And I'm using that term very intentionally, war, W-A-R, because that's what this has been for such a long time in so many of our minds. There, there's been this, this battle over operating systems. And it's interesting because that has largely, lately, become disconnected from any kind of context. There's, it's just been an us-against-them kind of mentality, a sort of a team membership, team player, my football team against your football team. That's what it is lately. Now, historically, I want to point out, very significantly, that it has not been that way. Historically, the OS wars was something that was was quite literally a matter of personal I, I hesitate to use this term because there, there's a lot of weight here but there it's a, a lot of personal freedom issue and by this I mean if you were a person in the world at not that long ago like we're talking 40 years ago or so in the 80s 1980s there was a question of whether or not you even had to touch a computer at all for work for play, you could go through the entire 80s and never have touched a computer, and you'd be fine. I'm not one of those people, but it could have happened. You could easily go through the 80s. I know people who went through the 80s and probably literally never touched a computer, but certainly you could you could at least say that they very, very rarely touched a computer. And that was fine. They could do that. When they needed to do something remotely, they could pick up a phone and talk to a person on the other end, and that person on the other end would do the task that, that, that they needed done. So, for instance, if you needed, I don't know, to sort something out with your bank, you could call on the telephone, and, and you would get a person on the other end, and you would say, hey, person, I need to transfer $50 from my checking to my savings. And that person would fill out the paperwork on your behalf, do the transaction, confirm it with you, maybe give you their name. So if anyone asks, well, who, how did this money ha- get get from here to there? You could refer to, well, your, the, the person at a desk that you call Chris helped me perform that action. And that was that was the way it was done. That was it. Probably from, I would, I would guess... From the 1950s, maybe, I'm guessing, to the 80s, uh, to, to the, rather, to the early 90s, because it would have happened through the 80s. That was just the thing that would happen. That was remote work. Now, in the 90s, I think probably it, it started to shift pretty heavily to the point where you really had to start using a computer at your job or, or just sort of because they had propagated so much at that point you had to start using computers at home just on a pragmatic basis you just you ended up using a computer cuz schools were starting to demand papers in a typewritten form and if you've ever used a typewriter uh, it's a horrible process you can't erase and it's you, you know if you make a mistake you have to i think you just have to start over so people would start to use computers because it just it, it just made more sense now at that point and arguably sooner if they were a little bit tech-savvy and were using computers in the 80s. But when it started to become an issue of, well, you can't be a human and not use a computer, when that happened, there became 
there there was an issue of okay well so now it's a requirement for me to use a computer so what operating system shall i subject myself to in order to get computing done and for whatever reason and i don't know the reason microsoft was the rose to the top as the de facto operating system meaning that if you were a human in a first world country is that a term that we use anymore first world i don't know a fairly wealthy nation then you would you would essentially you're you're being forced to use microsoft windows or maybe yeah no it must have been windows by the 90s um and 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 what did that mean why did you have to use windows in order to get computing done was that your only option no there were other options and there were more options than than the the two that are probably popping into your head right now windows and apple there were other things there were like there were amigas there were commodore 64s there were these other computers out there and probably a lot more than that that i just don't know about because i wasn't really into computers historically myself um so there were these other options that you would have and in the 90s that started to really kind of take off in a big way um apple and and that kind of got uh, threatened i would say or or maybe challenged by bios and and the next and and obviously the various permutations of windows were were happening and os2 happened so there was a lot of kind of sudden forking and branching off of this idea of hey okay so people need to compute shouldn't people have a choice about how they compute and that was a very real concern because not everyone wanted to have to use windows because surprise surprise in a world of of diversity such as the one that we live in one solution really doesn't work for everyone it is still something that the world seems to be learning but that principle was something that people were kind of holding on to and people started questioning whether they really needed to use certain uh solutions or certain operating systems for their for for whatever computing that they had to do and as people became more and more reliant upon computing the more and more they came to want to customize their experience to tailor their experience for their own for their workflow for the way that they work and that's understandable and it's something that ought to be up to the user i would think now that idea the idea that people should have a choice of how they use something that they're paying money for is i mean it's literally still a progressive idea you you still see certain government agencies for instance locked into a reliance upon some kind of proprietary technology it it's quite common now whether you can interface with that proprietary that proprietary system from some other thing is a little bit of a you know sometimes you can sometimes you can't it depends i mean not too long ago it must have been about 5 years now i encountered a an academic uh, a federal uh, system for academic institutions that literally required internet explorer 6 i think it was and at that time internet explorer 9 i think was out or something like that 6 was still a very like it was it was noticeably an older version of internet explorer and the fact that no matter what operating system you were using you had to to interface with their site on internet explorer 6 was well obviously shameful and that was the problem that 
governments and official organizations were locking themselves and, by extension, people who needed to to interface with them into a specific system, which which kind of has a weird trickle down effect because if if this government institution mandates, okay, well, if you want to interface with us, you have to go out and purchase a Windows license so that you can run Internet Explorer 6, uh, that's got a lot of implications. It's got a lot of implications on you as a person, on, on your ability to possibly do some some task that you, you need to do for your own either success or, or just because you want to or because your job demands it. It also has implications on on the corporation Microsoft because now they're they they have a they, they've got job security essentially right they've got that that classic sort of job security by by making such a bad system that they have to that 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 there's no other choice but them and I'm not saying that 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 that, that they necessarily had anything to do with this government institution or or, or uh, department relying upon Internet Explorer 6, that may have been a really poor programmer on the, in that department who happened to use web technology that just didn't work correctly except in Internet Explorer 6. So in a way, Microsoft didn't directly possibly have anything to do with that, but certainly they sold the contract, certainly they, they introduced a bunch of specific stuff into introdu- Internet Explorer 6 and so on. So there's, there's, there are implications, right? And there, there are unfair advantages happening there based on, based on negligence. And it's the same kind of negligence that you would get really annoyed if, if a, a fellow employee designed some system written in a make-believe language that they have made up so that when you go to their source code, you have no idea what any of it means, you don't know how to use the application, and, um, and, and so that employee has complete job security, not because they are good at what they're doing, but because they've done something that the business relies upon so heavily that that to remove the employee would mean that the whole system would crumble, or that you would have to spend half a year sort of reverse engineering it all, which, I mean, at that point, you may as well just write something new. And and that that's just a bad precedence to, to set. But nevertheless, that's kind of the precedence that got set, I think, sort of during the 90s. Although I guess you could argue it was it was it was on its way during the 80s with with the rise of all these these computer systems. And you might think, well, the 80s is pretty early in the computer in, in computer history. I mean, computers had only been born sort of since you know for for maybe I don't know 20, 30 years. Then you think, wait a minute, 20, 30 years—that's not super early. Like the 80s. By the 80s, someone should have recognized that that um, that computer programs were assets, like that they were important, and that source code was an important thing to have access to. Well, as it happens, someone did realize that around 1983, Richard Stallman created an organization called GNU, GNU.org. It was the GNU's not Unix, G-N-U, GNU's not Unix, which is was the answer to to the the closed source system of of Unix, which at the time was sort of the de facto business operating system. So this concept of of independence when choosing how you are going to compute is at this moment not very not very new. It is pretty old. 
considering. Uh, Unix itself was born in, I don't know, what was it, like 1969 or 1970 or something, famously. Uh, and and the idea to then ensure that people had a maximum degree of independence around that happened really only about 13 years into the lifespan of that operating system. And, you know, in some ways that's actually a really long time. In other ways, it's not that super much of a long time. So it's kind of interpreted how you will. Point is, by now, we've had the idea floating around for a very long time. And obviously in 19, I don't know, 92 or 4 or whatever it was, Linux itself was was born and combined with the GNU uh, tools that already existed, it all coalesced into the Linux operating system, which largely defeated closed source... I could probably end the sentence there. I was going to say defeated closed source Unix, um, although that's probably arguable, but I would say largely it, it defeated closed source Unix. And I think given all of the developments in the past, I don't know, three or four years, since I guess 2016-ish for me, uh, I feel like it really has made the impact that we'd all hoped it would make. There's a lot of arguments for that and against that, and I'm, believe me, I'm aware of them <laughs> all, probably, uh, and I'm certainly open to them all. I am not, um, I wouldn't say I was sold on any of this, but I would say that there's an undeniable impact that Linux and open source has had on the world, and it is for the better. I know it's for the better because it's resulting in a lot of open source code, and the open source code means that people can look at the code, learn from it, find mistakes in it, guarantee that it's something that they want to be running, reuse it, and so on. That may or may not seem like a big deal, but I think if we think about the scientific method, I don't really know what the scientific method is. I think it has something to do with hypotheses and proof and stuff like that. But if we think about how science, how scientists work, and sort of that, the, the relatively modern idea that we could, that we can observe how the world appears to work, we can formulate this, this hypothesis about, about how that system gets repeated, and then we can do experiments and start testing and seeing if, if that's correct. And eventually we can arrive at something we're pretty darned sure about. We can say, yeah, we've noticed that flowers tend to bloom in the morning and that they appear to benefit from the presence of light. So we're going to assume that they basically feed off of light and we'll do some experimentation and try to grow some plants, some flowers in, in total darkness and so on. And then finally you arrive, to, by the way, I, I realize that it's kind of funny that my most scientific example that I could come up with off the top of my head was how flowers survive. I, I guess it was because I saw a flower yesterday. Um, but yeah, I'm not really into science. I, I don't know a whole lot about it. Um, I, I just, I don't. But I do know that that's a process, that that's a thing that we do, right? That's how the, the modern thought process is largely built around that idea that you you observe something you possibly you, you test it in some way and then you arrive at a conclusion you possibly you're revising your your hypothesis or possibly you're saying yeah actually I think I w I'm pretty sure I was right nine times out of ten or ten times out of ten better yet um, when I repeat this this set of 
of experiments, the same result keeps happening. And I'm going to keep repeating those results under different conditions and, and see what affects it. And that's how we learn. And a lot of the modern technology that we have today, in fact, probably all of the modern <laughs> technology that we have today, was, was built around that idea. Someone didn't, for instance, develop the CPU, the central processing unit of a computer. They didn't invent that by growing up in rural, I don't know, Nebraska, not reading any books about how electricity works, not reading anything about how computers process information, and then deciding one day, I think I'm going to develop the CPU today, and sit they, they sat down at a desk and, and suddenly had the CPU developed. That's just not how it works. And I think probably 99.9% .9 of the times, things just don't work that way. We build on ideas. We learn from each other. We look at, at, at scientific studies or we look at, at, at ideas that have been posited and sort of proven over time. And then we iterate upon those. Why am I talking about all this? Well, because open source code allows for iteration. And it's really, really important that we are able to iterate off of one another's ideas. If we are not able to iterate on one another's ideas, then progress is restricted. We cannot proceed with developing better solutions as quickly. Now, once an idea is out in the world, obviously people can kind of iterate on it whether or not it's open. And, and we've seen that. We've seen, uh, we've seen people borrow ideas from one another. But a lot of times, or sometimes, that, that requires reverse engineering the idea because the idea isn't either source code or it's not, in a, it's not in a format that makes sense to be sort of spelled out that way. But you, you can iterate on the idea nevertheless. You can kind of reverse engineer it, figure out how they arrived at that thing, and then repeat the process and arrive at your own similar but different thing. Well, with software, we have source code. It, that's a thing that exists. We can have that be open and thereby eliminate the need for reverse engineering. And that's a huge deal. It, it's a huge enough deal that that's really why we have so much open source now. Because, yes, while you can look at an application and think, well, that's a really good UI decision. I'm going to borrow that idea from mine. That's one thing, right? But knowing exactly how to create that widget on screen is is a computer science degree. So if the source code is there, it's open, and you can look at it, well, now you know how to create that widget on the screen because you can you can look at it. And you may not know exactly what all that C++ code means. You might have to go teach yourself C++ now, but you've just avoided having to reverse the idea of this is how a widget is made on screen, or whatever the problem is that you're looking at. So at one point, Linux became a thing. And with Linux, with, with the whole GNU stack, everything was open. And just imagine the kind of, of revelation that must have been for programmers in the 90s, where if you wanted to start in a career with computers, your only option was to go to university. Now, if you don't have the money to go to university, then you don't get to play on computers. Kind of a drag. In the 90s, that changed because of Linux, because of GNU Linux. Now, if you wanted to play on computers, 
All you had to do was download Linux and look at the code, read the documentation, read up on how to program. These are, are minimal investments, and for many areas of the world, it just involved going to a library. All of it could be done for free. I, I know that this can be done for free, for zero dollars, because that's how I built my computer career. Didn't pay for any of it. Never went to school for computing. It was completely self-taught for zero dollars, because at the time I didn't have the money to, to pay for it anyway, so it wouldn't have happened if it hadn't happened for zero dollars. And it happened for zero dollars because I was able to download Linux, compile a kernel, look at the source code, and start to understand how all of this stuff fit together. Now don't get me wrong, it took many many years for me to sort of, for all of that to come together to such a degree that I was then able to start getting paid for, for knowing that stuff. But from the very, from the very start of it, I would say, probably only about a year in, no, not even that, less than a year in, I knew my, my knowledge of computing had gone up exponentially to such a degree that I was able to start getting paid nominal amounts of money to help people fix their computers, for instance. There are probably many other things that you could get paid nominal amounts of money for in computing, but the thing that I was able to somehow market myself towards was fixing people's computers in little ways, whether it was setting up their printer to be uh, networked, a network printer, or whether it was transferring data from their old computer to their new computer, which by the way is how I got zero dollar computers to use for myself. That was the way that I was able to finance having a computer at all, was to help someone transfer their data and then to kindly offer to take their old bothersome computer away at no charge, which I then turned into my primary computer, running Linux, which was a zero dollar operating system. So it's literally a zero dollar computer. In fact, it's better than that because it's, it was a, a zero dollar computer for which I got paid to get the data off of and to take away. So I got paid to, for, to take a free computer. So, I mean, little things like that make a huge difference. And without that difference, then there's a lot less personal liberty around computing. If that wasn't an option, then the only way you can get into computing would be to purchase a computer and purchase the operating system. And I know, a lot of people say, well, you don't have to purchase the operating system. The operating system comes on the computer. It's just, it's part of the computer. It's practically the firmware of the computer. It's not, but it, it's basically like the firmware, right? It's baked into the computer. You get a computer, you get an OS. It's not that big of a deal. Quit your complaining. And while that is, I think there's a, a very valid argument to that. There are computers out there that are perfectly usable with an operating system already installed on them, and so why not just use that? It's very much, I, I think of it personally as an appliance. You don't go and buy the parts to a toaster and then assemble a toaster. You just go buy the toaster. You don't care how it became a toaster. You don't care why it works. All you know is that you now have a toaster. Same goes for the computer, right? You go out and get a computer. You don't care how it works. All you know is that when you press the on button, it boots up and it gets you to an inter internet browser. There's totally an argument for that, and if you use a computer with an operating system on it and you, you're using open source software or not, then you're computing, and that's 
that's fine. And if you do use all open source software, then uh, on top of that stack, then you're, you're essentially running an open source stack down to at least the computer level, right? You, you, you've you, you've you've opted for open source for every component, but the thing that makes the computer sort of go, and that's great. That's nice. And in the end, what does it even matter, right? Because I mean, okay, you're using a, a computer that's not open source. You're using applications here and there that are open source, here and there that aren't open source. Big deal, right? It's not. It's not really a. It makes no difference in the end. Now, again, historically, it made a huge difference because if you bought a computer, you did have to buy the OS. You did have to install it separately. You you were you know when you're using these applications there wasn't a whole lot of interoperability you couldn't write something in one word processor and expect it to open in another you were very much sort of signing up for exactly one thing nowadays it's not like that thanks to open source thanks to the the concept of open specifications and open standards you can write in one word processor and then go to another computer at that the public library and open it up there you can go online and upload it to a, an online editor all kinds of things you have lots of options now so functionally the importance of all this stuff for the end user seems to have really diminished and i think i think arguably if you're not looking at the source code and benefiting from the openness of the source code, then the fact that you are using open source is largely, it's basically just a badge, right? It doesn't actually affect you on a day-to-day -day basis from a user perspective. Whether the code has been updated by someone being paid at Microsoft to update the code, or Apple or whatever to update the code, or whether it was updated by some volunteer in France, doesn't matter to you. All you know is that the software now runs better, and it does more things, and you're happy. Whether or not you can say, oh, it's an open source application, it's just basically, it's, it's, a, it's an achievement, right? It's a, it's a reward or a, a badge of honor or something. It's, it's just something that you say. It's a sticker you put on your computer. It doesn't have any meaning to you because you're not interacting with that source code. Functionally, that source code may as well be closed because you don't open it. So the question is, now, in the modern world, does it actually matter whether we're running open source? Let's ponder that, but let's do it with a cup of coffee. assume that you have a cup of coffee and that you've had some time to ponder this question. Does it matter whether it's open source? Well, I mean, as you can probably guess, I'm gonna say it matters that it's open source. Oh wait, I actually, I'm not going to say that. So here's the thing, as I, as I said before the break, open source that does not get looked at from a user perspective may as well be closed source. That's, there's arguable, there's an argument against that because certainly you could argue that because it's open source, the user is benefiting from all of the things that, that you benefit from with open source. 
but but only tangentially, only only by proxy. From the user's perspective, the code is still it's just an application that they launch. It's an app. It's a black box that they open, that they use, and then they close at the end of their of the task. Whether or not that was open, they'll never know. You could use an application and be told, "Don't worry, this is open source." for three years, and then discover that it was never open source at all, and there, functionally for a user, there, there was no difference. Like, literally, I could imagine having that happen. Running an application thinking, well, this is, this is great, this is open source, this is fantastic, I'm benefiting all, in all manner of ways from the open sourcedness of this application. And then years later, discover, that's not open source. It's free to redistribute, but it's not open source. That could easily happen to any of us. In fact, I think there would be an argument on the operating system level that running a closed, that running open source on a closed source system is almost in a way problematic. Why do I say that? Well, because the developer supporting the open source software in order to be able to support the open source software on the closed operating system obviously has to have access to a closed source system. You cannot truly support, I think there's an argument I should say, that you cannot truly support an open source software on, for instance, Windows, unless you have access to Windows. Because if someone supports a bug, you may never be able to see that bug or or generate the output of the failure due to that bug without running it on Windows. Same goes for Mac OS. If you're supporting something that's on Mac OS, you have to have access to Mac OS in order to fully support the software on that on that OS. Now, if you're a developer and you generally run Linux, that's problematic. And at that point, you basically just have to get someone else on your team to support those other operating systems, or else all the users using those operating systems are kind of on their own. You can try to make changes, but you're never going to be able to confirm them because you have to have access to these non-open source systems in order to be able to do that. Now with with Windows, that's vaguely possible. You can go to the Windows, like the Microsoft website, and get developer images of Windows. They're huge, they're like 20 gigabytes, so you'd better be a developer lucky enough to be in a very good internet uh, bandwidth situation because 20 gigabyte images it's not exactly it's not a small download and they expire after I think 30 or 60 days or something like that so you're going to be downloading 20 gigs often then you can run it in a virtual machine verify that your fix worked and then ship it out to your or, or publish the, the patch now for Mac OS you cannot do that there's no way to emulate legally Mac OS and they're there are people out there who who point to different pages here and there that say, "Oh, you can you can do it." But if you read the agreement that Apple expects people to to not literally sign, but 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 live by when downloading or or when using macOS, there is a very clear stipulation that macOS must be run on Apple hardware. That's it. That's the that's there's no there's no legal loophole there. The stipulation is that in order to run macOS, you must have the hardware, the supported hardware, for that OS to run on. So there's no testing a software application for... Why did I say it like that? There's no testing an application or 
there's no testing software uh, for Mac OS without going out and purchasing a Mac. And once again, that's that's a huge that's that's asking an enormous amount of someone who's just developing free software for zero dollars, probably getting paid zero dollars for it. To 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 tell them that they really ought to test on Mac OS is is essentially saying, well, for this thing that you're doing for zero dollars, you should you should pay five thousand dollars, and you should do that on a fairly regular basis, like every three three or five years or whatever whatever the expectation would would be for, to keep up with with Apple. That's that's crazy. That's that's um that's just absolutely crazy talk. So I think there's an argument here that. Running open source on a closed source system is is a bit of a strain, to be honest. Now, sometimes that's the only option that someone has. I mean, if if you're if if you have a computer that is not owned by you and you are are running the OS that the owner has mandated, then that's that, right? You don't have a whole lot of say in the in in the matter. And and if that owner is your employer, then to to get around that with like a a live boot CD or something or a live boot thumb drive that would be uh, silly because then you would stop making an income and you would not be able to survive in a world based around your income so that's just sometimes it's just not practical and it's great that open source software continues to this day to support closed source systems and in fact there are open source developers out there who just don't even who don't believe that an open operating system is important at all for the reasons that I've described, the the open the open source part that people that some people care about it are just the applications, the thing that the users actually use sort of consciously. And if the computer itself, if we're talking about the computer and the OS as kind of a self-bootable appliance, if that's closed source, then who cares? But I do think it's important to at least be cognizant of of the dynamic involved here. It's not that developers necessarily demand you run an open source stack uh, the, the the open source software as your operating system because they just have an idea that you should be running this open source operating system the 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 problem the the conflict now the modern conflict is i think that some people some developers especially in in sort of the modern world where we actually have uh, fairly apparently progressive ideas about how people should maybe be able to to get into technology no no matter you know regardless of their of their of their ways and means if they, they may not have grown up in a very wealthy family and for whatever reason in the modern world we think that yes even these people who have not grown up in well-to-do families should be able to get into computing and and do other things that normal people get to do so there's this, you know, I mean, I'm talking about, I guess, privilege is the modern way that we express this. There's this privilege level of using a non-open source operating system. You are able to possibly go out and purchase a computer with the latest and greatest operating system baked into it, and that's something that you can possibly do as someone with a, a normal job living in a fairly wealthy nation. Not everyone can do that, and that's an important thing to understand, that some people do not have the ways and means to get a modern computer running the modern closed-source OS that all the advertisements tell us are the most exciting version and the most up-to-date thing available. Some people 
need to get $0 computers and run a $0 operating system. And as long as they can do that, they can do amazing things. But to expect them and to require them to then to, to acquire an operating system that, that, that demands money in order to maintain is uh, it's a little bit harsh. And I think a lot of us fall into a trap of where that's just not a reality for us. Well, there's, there's nobody that hard up for cash that they can't get a cheap Windows laptop from the local office store. Or, well, there are cheap Macs available. I mean, after all, you could get a used one and so on. These, these kinds of arguments. They're made all the time, but they're made usually by people who have either not had to deal with not having any money, or it's been a very, very long time that they've had to deal with it, so it's kind of lost its impact. But I'm telling you, as someone who's been there, that that's a very real concern. That's an actual thing that that's a blockade for a lot of for for people, for a lot of people, and a lot of people who who are very smart, who who could do amazing things on computers if it were only zero dollars for zero dollars. So that's one aspect of the operating system that you that you might choose to run. The other aspect is that a lot of people say, well, I'm not a programmer, so I can't contribute to open source. And I think the the message from the open source community for a very long time now has been that that's just not the case, that you can actually contribute regardless of your ability and or interest in source code, in programming languages. There are many ways to contribute. You can find these ideas on websites all over the place. All, all the open source websites have ways that you can tr contribute. Some of them say things like, oh, you can help design the artwork for the upcoming release, which a lot of times admittedly means you can enter a contest to have your artwork used as the wallpaper or something like that. You may not win, so you, you've effectively not contributed at all, right? Or maybe you have. Maybe you feel like you have contributed because you've taken a part in, in a process. It's kind of up to you and how you how you interpret it and what how you gain satisfaction from 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 that sort of that system. I mean some people really do find satisfaction in in partaking and others only find satisfaction in winning, quote unquote. So it, it, it differs. But there are other ways too. You you might help by triaging bugs, which amazingly is not a technical it's not a high tech kind of thing always there there are low levels of that that you can contribute to you can contribute by uh helping with documentation you can contribute by uh configuring servers sometimes if you're kind of in the inner circle uh, and so on so there's there's a lot of stuff that you can work up into into a, a meaningful contribution but what i want to focus on here that doesn't i don't think gets mentioned very often is that you can also contribute in a meaningful way to open source by using open source that seems like there's a there's a catch or there's a scam or like there's a like this is one of those self-fulfilling things you can contribute by just by by using and and then you're contributing how, well how how does that work but it actually does work and i will tell you how first of all we we must stop looking at contribution as a as an instant thing that happens once and then you've contributed that's kind of the, the winning view of contributing. I submitted this artwork, and it got selected. I won. I contributed. Well, that's by no means what open source actually requires of someone in order to call yourself an open a, a contributor to open source. 
if you use an open source operating system, you are going to necessarily have the opportunity to have a voice in in the construction of that open source. It may not always be a direct cause and effect action that you can point to and say, yeah, I did that right there. That that thing, that that widget is mine. That 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 doesn't it won't be that direct all the time. Sometimes it is, because sometimes if you're a programmer, you could certainly point to a widget and say, that is literally my widget. I, I actually designed the function of that little applet up in the system tray. That's mine. But for a lot of, in a lot of areas, it's not that direct. You can't point to one single element and say, well, that's, that's the thing that I created for this operating system. But what you can do is say that I'm a member of this of this process or of this community. I've had opinions. I've I've talked about my opinions with other people in that in this community. I've I've voiced a concern. Maybe I've filed a bug, maybe not. I've posted in a forum somewhere about a problem that I've had. And the thing that you don't really see is that those those that participation resounds. It it resonates and Developers see complaints, they see problems, they see questions, they see things that are not clear. Maybe it wasn't a bug report, maybe it was just a question that you posted on linuxquestions.org. Hey, how do I set this thing? And someone answers you, well, this is how you set the thing. But a developer sees that question, they see the answer, and they think, you know what, that wasn't obvious. I should go in there, I should be the developer. To go in there and to change that thing, or to, to create a widget, so that when someone says, I want to configure this thing, they can click that little widget and a configuration option comes up. Or whatever the case may be, it happens all the time. Now, unfortunately, there's not always a clear way to trace all of that back. And this is something that I've even noticed in my own, in my own process. Several years ago, I wrote a blog post about how notifications drove me crazy on the Linux desktop. I wrote about it in uh, in relation to the Linux desktop because that's what I was using. That's what I have been using for a decade now uh, exclusively. So that was my only frame of reference. And I wrote about this thing. And I said notifications need to be fixed. Right now they, they, they pop up all over the place. They pop up in the background. They pop up in front of you when you don't want them. They're just all over the place. We need to fix this. I wrote this in a, in a blog post and it later um, I think I – republished it in a little ebook that I put on uh, Smashwords called um, Love Letters to Computing or Love Letters to Open Source or Computing Without Compromise, something like that. It's, it's on Smashwords. You can find it. And and that was just this idea that I had that notifications needed to be fixed. Sometime afterwards, or and I shouldn't even say it like that, at the same time, I think, Mark Shuttleworth of Canonical, the sponsors of Ubuntu, wrote a very similar blog post about how notifications on Linux had to be fixed and i it was it was the timing was such that i saw it at least in my memory this is how it happened and and maybe i'm right maybe i'm wrong but this is the impression that i had at the time the impression that i had at the time was that my blog post and his blog post practically came out at the same time and i thought to myself my gosh is is like mark shuttleworth like reading my blog and like like taking the idea or something and then i thought no that's kind of crazy and i thought well did i see his and did i copy his and i don't, I don't think so because i don't really read his stuff that often and so it, it was just like this one of those uncanny things where where these 
two ideas collided online. You know, they, they were just out at the same time. And certainly Mark Shuttleworth has a much wider reach <laughs> than Klaatu. Uh, so I think the fact that, that he was thinking about this thing at the same time that I was thinking about this thing probably means that there were a bunch of other Klaatus or, you know, whatever their names may be, were also thinking about it. So maybe you wrote a blog post at the same time, dear listener, and I don't know about it. You know, like, there are lots of people sort of thinking, okay, this is the thing that we need to tackle. Now, I don't know why all those things coalesced at the same time, but apparently they did. And this has happened, the same thing has happened a couple of other times, too, to me, where I'll, I'll start thinking about something, or I'll mention something in a podcast, and then suddenly it comes to my attention that the same thing was mentioned in this blog post over here, or in this article over here or on that show over there. And it's just this kind of weird uh, synchronicity almost of these ideas that are culminating at sort of relatively the same time. And when I say the same time, probably realistically I mean within months. But it happens, and it feels like it all happened like literally on the same afternoon. And that, I think that's just kind of the internet effect, where you start you start picking up on, not patterns, but you, you pick up on similar themes and so you kind of conflate them together and so probably if we if we were quite scientific about it we could probably look up when i actually started talking about notifications whether it was on a blog or a podcast and when mark shuttleworth actually started talking about it and when when you know i don't know uh, aaron saigo started talking about it or, or whatever or gnome it was probably months apart and i conflated it in my memory to being like the same afternoon whatever the case may be my point is that you are when when you're running an open source operating system, you are part of that conversation. You're part of that phenomenon where ideas start to coalesce and people sort of get to a point where they just think it's time to stop this madness and to fix it. And that energy within a community influences the path of development. And that's why I say we have to get away from this sort of did you win the contest idea of what contribution is? I contributed to open source by using an operating system, by having thoughts and ideas and reactions and questions and, 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 and ideas and solutions, and I broadcast them in whatever way I broadcast them, whether it's on a, a forum post or in a, in, in a, a Mastodon thread or an email to a to a developer friend that I know, or or talking about it at a conference, whatever form that takes, that's the kind of influence that you can actually have on open source. Now, you can argue, well, can't you have the same kind of influence on closed source software? And well, yes, you can. You, you can do that. And you see it in threads. I, I saw it all the time back when I was working as a system administrator, having to support closed source applications. I would, I would go to the the closed source thing and look up, well, why isn't this working today? And there would be a series of threads or forum posts about how this thing was broken and how if this company didn't fix it, people were going to stop using the software. This had to, this had to change. This had to be fixed. This is outrageous that it hasn't been fixed. And it's just this weird sort of dynamic because on closed source software, your impression is that you're never being listened to because because no one ever gives you any kind of feedback. And now you can fall prey to the same thing on open source. There's, there are lots of opportunities to feel upset about open source. There are a lot of opportunities to feel upset about closed source. Now there are lots of opportunities to influence 
both in the same way, by being simply, by being vocal about your opinions. At some point in closed source, someone may think, okay, well, we actually might lose customers if we don't fix this thing. Or they may think if we're giving them the benefit of a doubt, you know what, who cares, let's not give them the benefit of the doubt. Either way, people are influenced by, by users. Open source wants to be influenced by anyone who uses it. You are free to start using open source and start influencing it one way or another. Now, some people interpret influencing as berating and barraging developers with demands and outrage and causing causing outrage online and so on. And that's one way of influencing open source software. I, I don't know that that's the most positive or effective way of influencing open source software personally, but it is a way of doing it. And there are people out there who do it that way. And th those same people exist in the closed source camp as well. You'll find just as much as just as much outrage in the closed source as, as with certain vocal contributors of open source. It doesn't have to be that way though. We can all contribute in the way that we feel is best. And certainly I feel the the uh, one better way of contributing to open source is, is indeed by using it and then by offering suggestions on how it might be better in a kind and respectful manner. But the I think the the meaningful contribution in, in this paradigm is the contribution that comes from actual experience. And I think that there is a subset of people who attempt to influence open source by not using open source. And, and this subset of person typically says that open source is not ready for them. It's not good enough yet. And this, this person, if we condense the, this subset into one person, this, this person often has been saying that open source is not ready for the past 10 to 20 years. And they may try something open source every three years or so, and they will then broadcast about how open source is just not ready. It's just not there yet. Open source would be ready if they only had this one thing. And once it gets that one thing, they will switch wholesale. Give it three years, and that thing has now shifted to something else. It's a moving goalpost. It will exist for forever. That's just the way that that type of person, that subtype of contributor or, or user, I guess, that's how they express their contribution by saying, I'm not going to use open source. It is not ready for me. And so I cannot use it until you achieve this, this goal. I personally can't stand that type of user. I did that. That's the thing that just gets me. It just frustrates me to no end. And yet looking at it objectively, it serves a purpose. Right. I mean, it's a thing that happens, so we may as well just accept that it's a thing that is a part of the system. But the the purpose that it it that it serves is it's the um it's the thing, right? It's it's the thing. It is the goalpost, and it's going to keep moving. And that's what progress is. It's moving goalposts. It's saying once you reach this point, we'll all be happy. And then when you get to that point, nobody's happy, and the goalpost has moved a couple of yards down the field because. I don't know why I'm using a sports analogy, by the way. This None of this means anything to me. But um, once you reach that point, then no one's happy and you have to keep going because now the goalpost has moved. The, the, the thing that is keeping people from using it has, has extended. I'm not supporting this, this model. I don't believe that it's actually very effective. I'm just saying that, that's, that it does at least represent sort of an aspect of reality, that some people require certain things to occur before they will they will switch over to to open source and and 
for all the people who who keep saying, "Oh, I'll switch once this is done," and then they don't switch, there are those people who switch. Like I could have easily, easily been a person who who might have said, "I'm not going to switch to open source until I have a video editor that meets my requirements." Now I didn't do that because I'm I'm a pretty flexible person and. I was happy to use, for instance, Blender to edit video for a very for first couple of years on Linux until Caden Live did when it reached 0.8. For me, that was kind of the that was it. That was the big change for me. It got it had all the features that I I felt were necessary for that kind of that model of video editor for what I was doing at the time, and so that's when I started using Caden uh, Live. But I'd been using open source itself for you know years prior because I wasn't willing to not use open source until a certain goal had been reached. But not everyone's like that. Some people won't use it until a goalpost has been reached. And then when that goalpost is reached, when the, the thing is achieved, then they actually go through with it. They actually switch to open source. So all of these use cases are valid, I think. Um, and if not valid, then they certainly exist. And they're ways of contributing. They are ways of making open source better by using open source, except that one where people won't use it. And, but but that I, I was just kind of highlighting them because they're a thing that happened, and we may as well talk about it. But but for people who actually use open source on a daily basis as their primary driver, they have voices in open source, and that's huge. It's huge because that's being part of open source. And you're contributing in such a way that you are you're forming, you're helping create the experience that you want to have on your computer, which historically has not been possible. You have to understand how big of a deal that is historically. And then even if you don't understand how big of a deal it is historically, you have to understand how big of a deal it is in reality right now. Because you don't get to control that. You don't get to influence that with Apple or Microsoft. Apple and Microsoft have 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 teams that have goals of their own and they require their users to adjust their expectations to meet the operating system. And you see that time and time and again with macOS especially. I mean, people the way people adjust their workflows and their preferences in order to make macOS be the perfect OS for them is astonishing. It is one of those things that I don't understand how it is mentally possible for people to put up with the stuff that macOS puts them through just because they are so dedicated to sort of the the idea of macOS, I guess. Maybe it's maybe it's something about status, maybe it's something about the design um of the UI. I'm not I'm not 100% sure what it is and it's probably I imagine different for each person, but the way that people make mac os work for them without any complaint whatsoever is astonishing because you see it and you think well why can't you just switch to open source now and make that be the perfect thing for you it wouldn't be that it's the same mental process but for whatever reason that's not something that that they're willing to do they would rather spend the five grand on a mac and have mac os than adjust their expectations similarly for a free operating system. It's something I'll never understand, I don't think. And I'm sure it happens on Windows as well, but it, it, I, I don't really see Windows... Uh, I don't 
I don't hear so much about it changing all that much or or it lacking functionality whereas Mac very famously lacks a lot of functionality in certain things and people just adjust their expectations for it and pleasantly just think well this is fine this is this is so much smarter Mac knows better than me and somehow Mac has more authority than open source developers I'm not I really don't understand it but anyway point being closed source systems don't let you influence them because they have marketing teams they have they have goals that they need to impose upon you for one reason or another whether it's to make sure that you don't stray from their 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 system or whether it's because they want to market to you in your start in your application menu whatever it might be there's some motivation from within the company that this is how the system is going to work and you need to adjust for it whereas open source is happy to adjust for you now, not everything about open source can adjust the way that you want it to, but at least by being a member of the community and a voice in that process, you do have an influence. You'll also find similar influences to what you want. So you might find that, that while it's been a perfectly lovely three years running the GNOME desktop, it turns out that your people, quote-unquote, are actually over here in in uh, mate land or or mate or whatever you say for that desktop or maybe they're over there in uh kde land or maybe they're over there in i don't know uh what what deep in or solace or not solace what is it uh maybe it is so budgie the budgie um desktop whatever it might be you can find the the different groups of of sort of activity happening that that mimic or mirror the the activities that you prefer so using open source it's it's half the battle the rest of the battle is being a user of open source and contributing to the conversation finding problems and and praising the things that you love about it it sounds a little bit intangible but it is part of computing it's that it's that human side of computing that i think modern modern computing systems are still are only just now kind of fully comprehending that that its user base is an element of the computer like you know the old saying from sun microsystems the network is the computer well the other side of that is that the human are are the the humans are the computer they're that they're the audience that the software must be built for at least in open source in closed source unfortunately they're the audience that must be plugged into and and adjusted for the computer. Open source, it's the opposite way. It is being built for that user base. And that's why you have so much choice and diversity in open source. Because the user base is so diverse. They, they All of them want something different. And so open source has an answer for, for 90% of them. So if you're thinking about using open source know that using open source is also contributing to open source in a very meaningful way. If you've never used Linux, you should go listen to episode zero of this show. It's on the website, gnuworldorder.info. It should also be at the, I think, bottom of your RSS feed in your pod-catching or podcast-playing application of choice. It's in the feed. Episode zero zero of this show will introduce you to practical usership of Linux. So if you're not using Linux, go check that episode out and give it a go. Give it a shot. Is there adjustment required? Yeah, there is. There, you'll have to adjust mentally, physically. You'll have to adjust lots of things. But it will be worth it, and you will be contributing to open source. 
because you are now a part of open source. That is all I have to say for this episode. I hope that you have enjoyed it. I hope it has been informative and given you some context. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Cast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at klatu at member.fsf.org. That's klatu at member.fsf, as in free software foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Go ahead, make my bob. <laughs> <laughs>